Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Hey, people, on the show this week, how to break up with your phone. A terrific interview with an incredibly smart reporter who has written a book about changing your relationship with your phone. That doesn't mean going off to live in a mountain and crushing your phone under your uh, un, under your car tire. It re, it's really about having a different relationship, a more mindful relationship with your devices. Uh, so we'll get to Catherine Price in a second, but first, your voicemails. Here's number one. Hi, Dan. My name's Nick. I'm calling from Tokyo. Um, currently walking around the Imperial Palace while I listen to the podcast. I thought I'd bring in ask a quick question, and that is, do you think that you can become too dependent on guided meditation? What's the right balance between guided and unguided meditation? Uh, and does guided meditation help you become better or worse at meditation? Thanks very much. Well, definitely, hands down, the coolest uh, venue for a voicemail. <laughs> the Imperial Gardens, did he say? Uh, awesome. Uh, I encourage listeners to call in from the strangest places you can think of. It's also a great question, uh, and as usual, I just want to issue my sorry. By now, this might be tiresome, but I feel the need to say it every time. A caveat, uh, which is that I am not a meditation teacher, not a mental health expert. I'm just answering these questions, which I have not heard until they're played to me on the show uh, to the best of my ability. So can you become too dependent on guided meditations? I suppose, but... Frankly, if if that's the biggest problem you have in your meditation, it's not that big of a problem, in my view. I mean, I'm really thinking of this from the standpoint of most people want to most people that I run across these days want to meditate but aren't doing the thing. And if guided meditations are what get you over the hump and you just feel like you don't want to do it any other way, then I I I would just be chalking that up as a win personally. Having said that, um, you know, in a perfect world, in my view, in my experience, really, I think it's it's about having a mix. Um, I, I don't think guided meditations make you worse at meditation by any stretch. I think, in fact, they make you better because it is so easy to lose touch with the point of meditation if you're doing it on your own it starts to feel stupid after a while you're just like why am i doing this sitting here with my eyes closed just feeling my breath coming in and going out and i'm getting distracted all the time it's so useful to hear a smart teacher connect you back to the basics it's okay to get distracted in fact it's inevitable the win is to notice when you become distracted and to start again why is that a win because when you see how crazy you are um you are less owned by the craziness uh, to to hear about how the practice can be connected to practical aspects of our lives, our relationships, our health, our relationship to our phone, for example, which we're going to be talking about on the, on the show today. Uh, all, all of these things are super helpful. Obviously, I have a, some skin in the game because I'm the co-founder of a company that serves up guided meditations. Um, but, but I really, I, I actually do believe, and this is based on my conversations with many experienced meditation teachers that guided meditations are not for amateurs. They're really for everybody. I use them in my own practice. I do a lot of unguided as well. But uh, so, so I think in an ideal world, in my 
personal point of view, and you can take or leave this, that that, that it's about having a mix. Uh, and that's really up to you what the, what the mix is. In my personal practice, it's really the vast majority is unguided, but I do quite a bit of guided as well just because I enjoy it. Um, and I do find that, it, you know, it's a, these are great reminders of things that are very easy to forget, again, wh- why we do this practice. So, uh, the bottom line is I actually think guided meditation makes you better over time if you develop what you believe to be some sort of, you know, it, you, if you feel like you're dependent upon them. Uh, I, it might be worth experimenting with unguided meditations, but I, I feel like there are much more serious problems that you should worry about. Uh, enjoy Hong Kong, Tokyo. Where was he? Tokyo. Tokyo is amazing, by the way. Um, uh, so enjoy it. And thank you very much for the call. Next one. Hi, Dan. Isaac Stevenson from Maine. I have a question. I'm going to ask it kind of two ways. Um, what would a meditation journal look like if you kept it? Or perhaps the second way of asking this is keeping a meditation journal actually contrary to having a good practice? Well, Maine is, is less um, exotic from than, than Tokyo. Um but having said that, I lived in Maine for eight years. I went to college there in Waterville, Maine, and then I worked in TV stations in uh, Bangor and Portland. So thanks for the call. Appreciate that. I won't else spare you my Maine accent because it's terrible. Um, meditation journal. I don't know much about meditation journals. Never, never, never uh, occurred to me to keep one, although I guess I kind of do. When I go on meditation retreats, I do jot down a lot of notes and then write about it. I wrote a uh, what I guess you could call a meditation journal type thing in 10% Happier where I uh, talked about what it was like to be on a meditation retreat and kind of gave a blow by blow. Um, I, you know, unless you're writing a book about your meditation experiences, I, I'm, I don't know what the value of keeping a journal is uh, like a super detailed journal, and I could see how it could become. I, I've experienced it becoming problematic for me when I'm on retreat or in meditation, and I get a bunch of ideas and I want to write them down, and then I sort of mentally wrestle with myself about whether I should write them down, and it's actually kind of a. It can be pretty distracting. That being said, if I wasn't distracted by that, would I be distracted by something else? Probably. Um, but if you're keeping a meditation journal because you're working with a teacher and you want to be able to report back to your teacher uh, various aspects of your practice to discuss, uh, I think that makes sense, although I don't know how detailed that journal needs to be. So I don't know that I'm giving you a super satisfactory answer here. Um, I don't think it's a huge problem. I think, the, again, I'm going to go back to what I said to uh, in response to our caller from Tokyo, that which is that if you're meditating at all, that's I, that's that's a win. We get so hung up on our – I'm speaking personally here. We all – I, I know this for myself and from everybody I know who meditates that I've ever had a conversation with. We all get so hung up on these little aspects of our practice because that's kind of what the mind does. Um, if, if, if you find that overall it's useful for you to t- keep a meditation journal, I um, say go for it. But if, if you – you know, if you're starting to become aware that it's um, – you know, really just kind of becoming distracting to you while you're meditating. And I would go back and re-examine why do you want to do it in the first place? Um, and really just, you know, the you hear this talked about in Buddhism all the time because it was 
a big slogan of the Buddha, which is the middle path. So I, I don't know that it's a yes or no answer. It's just about doing it with some skillfulness. Okay. Thank you for the call from Maine. Appreciate that. Let's get to Catherine Price. Uh, she's written a book called How to Break Up with Your Phone, which is a great title. Uh, and she's a really just a, a great interviewee with her own personal story about um, how she came to this and, and, and how she came to this understanding that we have this often noxious relationship with our technology. And as, as a previous guest on this show has said, um, we are conducting this, this society-wide, unregulated science experiment with our minds by just flooding the, the population with all of these devices. Just walk around the streets and watch in New York City and just see how many people are just staring into their devices. I'm one of them, by the way, so no judgment here. Um, it is uh, – we don't know what this is going to do to our minds over time. And so – but what we do know is that I think if you take stock of what your phone is doing to you on a day-to-day basis, that it, it is often making you more frazzled, more distracted. You're suffering from – often many of us are suffering from social media-induced FOMO or uh, feelings of insufficiency or or envy. Um so, so Catherine Price has has really uh, dived. She's a, an experienced journalist. She's really taken a deep dive here to look at what um, what what it is, what we know about what it, what this, these devices are doing to us, um, and how we can uh, how we can have a saner relationship with with our technology. She is not some sort of purist saying you need to ditch your phone. She's saying no. Actually, there are ways to. Uh, create a healthier relationship with it. So here we go, Catherine Price. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. All right, well, thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Um, the The question I always start with is, uh, how did you start meditating? I started meditating actually because of a writing assignment. I was interested in the subject, but then at some point I got an assignment from the uh, O Magazine, the Oprah Magazine, to do something about mindfulness. And so I got to interview John Kabat-Zinn and got started through that. He's sometimes known as the father of mindfulness. He's been on this podcast. but Exactly. And it was funny because I remember asking John Kabat-Zinn, I was like, okay, well, what should I start with? What type of meditation should I start with? And he suggested in his heavy Brooklyn accent that I suggest with like a guided meditation about a lake or a mountain. And I remember trying to do this meditation and realizing that I actually am horrible at visualizing anything. That's not a meditation that works for me. And I was trying to do this mountain meditation. I was literally sitting in front of a mountain and I couldn't imagine what I I just kept seeing the Evian bottle in my head. And that's when I realized, all right, I like the idea of this, but I need to find a, uh, a focus that works better for me. And as a result of that article, um, and my husband was already interested in meditating too. And we ended up taking a mindfulness-based stress reduction course and trying to incorporate mindfulness and meditation more into our daily lives. How long ago was this? The article was about eight years ago. Oh, so you were ahead of the curve. It was a while <laughs> I ago. So. It was a while ago, yeah. Or the editors said, oh, we're ahead of the curve, well, and then I jumped on that. Um, but yes, and, and it really was helpful. I thought that the mindfulness-based stress reduction course, it has helped me in so many ways. I mean, in terms of certainly being more present with my experience, but also dealing with a lot of like self hatred issues that I hadn't really 
figured out what to do with and just cultivating a lot more compassion and kindness towards myself. It's made a really profound difference in my life. What were you beating yourself up over? I mean, as a writer, I know there are endless things to beat yourself up over. I don't even know if it was like a specific thing. I've thought about this and I think it might have to do with just a general perfectionist personality. But there was this one particular, I mean, if we're going to get in there right now, there was this one thing they had us do during a day long meditation retreat as part of this course. And you were supposed to imagine yourself as a child. And I supposedly, I guess the idea was to be compassionate and kind toward this child. And instead, I just was imagining kicking this little girl and like punching her. Yeah, I don't know. I couldn't really identify why, but it was a very strong visceral response and image and i told my husband that and he was horrified i mean he was like this is so upsetting to me this is the person i love the most like talking about wanting to hurt a version of herself and it was a really powerful moment because i realized i don't want to feel that way and i don't know why i would be that i would not be that cruel to any creature so why was i imagining doing that to myself and i think that that was really a turning point for me and now i'm really happy to say that when i tell that story it feels very foreign like, I, I, I don't feel that way anymore. How did the meditation shave that down? What's the mechanism? You think? I think it's hard to identify exactly what it was, but I think the process of, of cultivating compassion towards yourself and non-judgment was really useful to me. I think also the recognition that our minds are not ourselves and that our minds are crazy. And and the way I like to think about it is that my mind, and my mind is like a very good friend who's also totally nuts. And so I keep it around, like I'm going to engage with these thoughts that I have, but I don't always need to actually go with them. I think the the realization that thoughts are really invitations was very powerful to me, where you're constantly, your mind is constantly thinking, and it's constantly presenting you with ideas, and that you don't have to follow all those ideas, because a lot of them are really bad. And, and the idea that you can always choose what direction you want to take, I think, was very powerful to me. So that if you're in a situation that's stressful or upsetting, that you can actually say, okay, well, I could continue down this path and just get even more pissed off about the traffic jam or whatever, or I could take a step back and try to reframe this. So for me, that was a really powerful kind of life life tool and coping mechanism. What, what does your practice look like these days? My practice these days is not what I want it to be because I, I have a three-year-old and I feel like I get up and immediately running around i used to be trying to do a girl a girl i used to be doing 20 minutes of uh just mindfulness-based meditation a day not a mountain or like breath coming in yeah get distracted start again yeah which of course happens every time you take a breath but of course (laughs) and then also means you're doing it right exactly exactly because you noticed right you noticed um and then i found for me body scans are work well and then also scanning the environment for sounds that was something that really worked well so I would say right now, my formal practice has definitely lapsed. But what I've realized is that my daughter is actually my meditation practice now, because when I'm with her, I make a conscious point not to be on my phone and try not to. I don't even turn the radio on. Actually, I don't listen to the news while I'm with her because I want to be fully present with her. And I want to use her interest in the world as a, a way for my for me to enjoy my experience like for example we got this light that changed it was like a nightlight that changed colors and she spent like 10 minutes just going <gasps> pink green <laughs> and i was sitting there on the futon just watching her do this and feeling so uh lucky to be experiencing this joy because i know that i knew that in a day she wouldn't be that excited about it and it was just a wonderful 
moment to be present in. So she's she's my meditation now. So, so I have a three year old boy, um, and I, one of the things I struggle with is that I try to be present for all the stuff, and some of the moments, like the futon moment you described, is pretty. Those are pretty easy to be present for, but a lot of the time it's incredibly boring. You know, eighty-seven run-throughs of him lining up his dinosaurs in a very, in a, you know, in a specific way, and then singing the same song while he's doing it. Like it's, it's cute to watch for a little while, but I, after a while, I find myself checking my phone or turning on the radio. Um, how do you avoid that? Well, I don't think you can avoid the desire to seek a distraction. So I think there's a lot of uh, direct comparisons between that experience and then the experience of meditating where maybe for a breath or two, you're like totally in it. And then your mind's like, yeah, but we could do so many more things right now <laughs> and checks out. So for me, I, I try to use those cravings as a reminder to to take a step back and say, well, what's what's boring? What does that even mean? Because she's not bored. She's fascinated by whatever's happening. So Maybe the issue is me and that I have lost the ability to find wonder and enjoyment out of singing the alphabet song 37 times in a row, you know, (laughs) but I think that's the challenge. And for me, my phone actually was the trigger for wanting to or my daughter rather was the trigger for wanting to reevaluate my relationship with my phone because I it was because of her that I realized I was so often finding in my hand and not even knowing why it was there and just disengaging from my present experience to do something totally mindless. Yeah, so the the title of the book, How to Break Up with Your Phone, great title. Thanks. Just give give me the backstory. Uh, you you shared just a little of it seconds ago, but say more about why you wanted to do this now. Well, I'm a health and science reporter by training, and then I also have done a lot of stuff with mindfulness and behavior change, and I used to be a teacher. So I think all those things came together to produce this book. And there was one moment in particular that catalyzed or inspired me to, to pursue this, and that was that I was sitting with my daughter one night and when she was a baby and she was looking up at me, you know, and her eyes were like perfectly developed to see her mother's face and no further. And I was looking down on my phone and I was searching for antique door doorknobs on eBay, (laughs) which (laughs) I really liked. And they truly bring me joy. But I realized I had this kind of out of body moment where I saw that scene from the outside and it was like her looking at me, me looking at the phone and my heart sank. And I realized I don't want this to be her impression of a human relationship. And and I've since realized that there actually really is a profound effect that you can have on babies if you there's something called the still face experiment where researchers basically had parents go totally still faced when interacting with their babies just for a minute and see what to see what would happen. And the babies freak out. It's very dramatic and very upsetting. And I realized that I was still facing my daughter in that moment. And then I started to notice the world around me and the way all of us are interacting with our phones and realize we're doing that to everyone. We're checking out of our interactions with people and just staring at our phones. So anyway, it it, it was an ongoing process, a lot of conversations with my husband, a lot of just awareness of like looking around and noticing how I and other people were interacting with our phones. And at some point, I realized this is not just me that, that's struggling with this issue. Everyone is constantly on their phones. And I would like to try to come up with a solution for that. Is there a solution? I think there is. I mean, I think it takes work, but it is basically taking the step back to try to reconnect with what's actually important to you in life or connect with that for the first time and then decide what role your phone can play in that. So it's not about dumping your phone. It's about going from what's currently this obsessive romantic relationship where we're sleeping with our phones and we're craving them when we're not with them. We get twitchy when we're apart to to going to being 
be friends, or as I say, friends with benefits, where it's like you <laughs> use your phone for when it's useful or truly enjoyable, but you have boundaries with it. Um, and I think that that takes, that takes work. It's not something that's going to be achieved just by turning your screen to grayscale or plugging it in someplace else. Let me just interrupt you on that. because So, so just to make sure, because some people may not have heard of this, but one of the techniques that's sometimes thrown out there as a way to make the phone less alluring is to make it's the term the term of art is turn it to grayscale but it basically takes all the color it's out of the screen it's not game of thrones it's a thing for your phone yeah. yes <laughs> that's right is that what they call it in game i of believe thrones? so i was <laughs> uh so it's not to make everything on the uh it's it's uh it, it, the idea is to take all the color out of the phone and there's some science that suggests that you'll be less likely to check it because it's less alluring but you're saying that that's not enough it's not enough. I mean, it is a useful thing to do, and we can talk more about why that's true, but it's not enough because you don't actually have any, you haven't figured out what your goal is. I mean, just saying I want to spend less time on my phone feels like a diet, but it doesn't have any purpose and it's not joyful. So the way I think about it is it's not about spending less time on your phone. It's about spending more time on your life. And in order to do that, you need to redefine your relationship with your phone. And then you also need to think more critically about what you want your life to be. And again, I mean, I at least personally found that to be surprisingly challenging, but that has made it all the more rewarding to to do. <laughs> so, so what I'm hearing, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that you're not throwing out a bunch of hacks, although it sounds like you have some hacks, but you're saying before we get into any of that, actually, we need to step all the way back and make a and have a big sort of philosophical discussion with ourselves about w- what do we want here? Yes, that's exactly the point. The guiding quote that I kept coming back to in the book is our lives are what we pay attention to, meaning that you only experience what you pay attention to and you're only going to remember what you pay attention to. And so every time you make a decision in the moment about what to pay attention to, you're really making a broader decision about how you're spending your life. And that's um, that's true. It's not ju- judgmental. If you decide, I really want to be spending my life on Instagram, that's your call. But in many cases, we haven't really been asking ourselves that question. And so I think that in order to truly change our relationship with our phones and to create these boundaries, and what's more, to use our phones to help make our lives happier in broader sense, you can't just have hacks. And that's something I really didn't want to have. Like, whenever I read anything about phones, it would be a litany of bad effects of phone time. And then it would be like two tricks for what to do about it. Turn it to grayscale. Yeah, exactly. And that's just not... And charge it outside of your bedroom. Right, right. Unless you know why you're doing that and what you want to do instead, you're doomed to failure. Well, guide us through how we would have this discussion with ourselves. Well, the first thing to do is to get in the practice of noticing how you feel in the moment. So again, this has a lot to do with mindfulness, which I was surprised by. It was like suddenly the phones became this very philosophical very quickly. And that basically is like noticing what you feel like when you're using your phone. Because once you notice what you feel like, then you give yourself the option of whether or not you want to continue. And once you start to associate your phone with actually feeling a particular way, then when you feel that you're about to reach for your phone, you can say, do I actually want to feel that way right now? I mean, I think of my phone as this Pandora's box of emotions. It's going to provoke an emotional response. And normally it's not going to be that great of a response. And that awareness is very helpful in making it possible for, for me to cut off that craving before I then automatically reach for the phone. So the first thing is cultivating awareness. And, you know, as we were talking about earlier, that what, one way to do that is to create speed bumps for yourself where you actually put obstacles in your way that force you to slow down and actually decide what you want to do instead of doing things automatically. 
So you can change the lock screen images on your phone. I mentioned I've got lock screen downloads at phonebreakup.com. You can also just like put a rubber band around your phone so that when you reach for your phone and you feel something strange, you have this momentary like, why do I have a rubber band around my phone moment? And then you're like, oh, it's to make sure that I actually want to be doing this right now. So there's things you can do to begin to get in the habit of cultivating this awareness of what you're doing and how it's making you feel. And when you think about it, that's a tool that's useful, not just with our phones, but with anything we're doing in our lives is to it's very useful to think, oh, I'm about to engage in this automatic behavior. How does that actually make me feel? And if you want to continue down the path, it's fine. But you've given yourself a chance to change direction. So let me just walk through this. It's great to host a podcast if you're a narcissist because you can make everything about yourself. So um, if, for me, I notice a couple things. One is that I check when I'm bored um, and that when I get deep into email, I start to feel this kind of rushing, racing tension, stress around whatever the content of the various emails are, and also the fact that I have somebody to answer and that I also have a million other work things that I need to get done, um, and it never feels like it's over. And if I'm not checking it, I also feel like, well, there's just a bunch of things piling up that I do need to get to, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that's just... I'm just trying to walk through the pro- – use myself as the guinea pig of walking through this process. So once I've identified that, so what? What do I do with that data? Well, first of all, congratulations because that's like a level of awareness that most people haven't really gotten to yet is to be immediately say, oh, why am I checking my phone and then how does it make me feel? Well, you know, I don't know if I mentioned to you, but I'm enlightened. So oh, right, right. I was going to say I think narcissists like to be complimented, <laughs> so I wanted to be sure to do that too. But, no, but you actually uh, uh, touched upon one of the exercises I recommend people get in the habit of, which is uh, www, which is what for, why now, what else. So what for is like, what are you actually picking up your phone to do? Why now? That could be situational, like I'm in an elevator and I always reach for my phone in the elevator. Uh, yes, or I'm bored. Like you're saying, and then what else? So what else could you do to achieve the same result? Or what else could you do that's something else entirely? Like maybe just look at the elevator door for six floors. So um, in terms of what to do with your revelations, I think that you have given yourself already the tools to uh, begin to make more conscious decisions about whether you want to engage in those behaviors. Um, And you also seem to be tuning into the actual physiological responses that we have when we reach for our phones, which is something I think is really powerful, which is to say, well, two main categories. One is dopamine, which is a brain chemical that our brains release when we we engage in an activity that our brains decide is worth repeating. So dopamine is released, for example, in response to sex or eating. But it also is released uh, in behaviors that become addictions like drugs or gambling or our phones. And our phones are packed with dopamine triggers because the more often you get a dopamine release, the more you're going to associate that behavior with um, something that's worthwhile, the more you're going to do it again and again and again. So I noticed that I'm sorry, you're in the middle of a thought, but I just want to pick up on that. I I noticed that there are like... I'm always looking around at my phone for the apps where I know I can get a dose of newness. So Mm -hmm. in the morning, I know I can get, I love this website, Pitchfork, where they do music reviews, and I'm a big music fan. So every morning, they have four or five new music reviews. So that's a big dopamine hit. Every morning on our Slack channel for 10% Happier, I find out how many people subscribed overnight. Uh, So that's a huge one. Email is obviously a huge Mm -hmm. one. Texts. Instagram. So there's all these little spots where I know I'll get something new. Mm-hmm. And when, and then there are, then we reach, you know, five, six o'clock, seven o'clock, 
uh, PM, and I've worn out all of my um, dopamine hits, and yet I'm still going for the phone. Right, right. I mean, that's the thing, that the, once the cycle starts, it's very, very hard to break. And w- what I would say in response to the list you just gave me is that, first of all, great, so you're aware of the newness component, because that is one of the biggest triggers for dopamine, is, is something that's new and unexpected, something that's unpredictable. You don't know how many people liked liked you overnight. <laughs> But once you recognize that's happening, you can then ask, well, which of these activities are things that I genuinely enjoy, that genuinely are worth repeating? And from the list you just gave me, it seems like perhaps the pitchfork one is something you actually do derive true pleasure from yes, because you love music. And so when you check that, yeah, sure, you're in a habit of checking it for the newness, but that's because for you, that actually is a behavior worth repeating versus maybe obsessively checking to see how many likes you get or just uh, finding yourself on Instagram for no reason. Um, For me, at least, those would be less fulfilling and less in line with uh, my actual priorities in my life. So those might be the ones to try to minimize, but then you can keep the ones that actually truly bring you pleasure. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot slash happier. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. But so how would I proceed from – you were probably starting to answer this when I cut you off. But how would I proceed from the realizations I've already had about my phone, how it makes me feel when I check it, the the the, the power of newness? How would I proceed from that to a saner relationship with this with this thing? Because I'll be honest, I don't think I have one right now, the sane relationship. Okay. Well, this is, this is good. We're going to work through it. This yeah. is what we're going to achieve. Okay. Well, first, so we, we just started on the, the most important first step, as we talked about, which is this uh, bigger picture awareness. The only other thing I was going to say in terms of that awareness is that we also get stress hormones released when we don't have our phones, and it makes us nervous and kind of twitchy. So just starting to be aware of uh, what you feel like when you're about to reach for your phone mm-hmm. and recognize that's because you actually are releasing stress hormones that are, and you're calming yourself down by picking up the phone, but that becomes its own cycle. Yeah, or like the, I notice my zombie arm is going yes. toward my suit pocket where yeah. I keep my phone. I call those zombie checks where you're like, I don't even know how my phone got in my hand yes. right now. Yes, um, all the time. Yeah, yeah, we all do it. So anyway, so you've done the the kind of awareness work. So then that's where the hacks come in. And, and the idea here is that once you know 
what you're doing, how it's making you feel. And you've kind of zeroed in on which parts of your relationship you like and then which parts you don't like and therefore what you want to keep and what you want to minimize. Then you can start making changes to your environment, both on and off your phone, to make it easier to change your behavior. There's a great book, The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg, and he talks about how you can't break a habit once you get these dopamine cycles established, but you can change a habit. You can replace the behavior, one behavior with another. So that's when you start doing things like, okay, well, I know that Instagram is a problem for me, so get Instagram off your phone. You can always reinstall it. Get it off your phone. Get it off your phone. He's looking at me with concern right now. Um, you know, and that doesn't mean you can't use Instagram, and that's a key point. It's not about restricting yourself. It's about making it a little bit harder. So you could look at it from your desktop browser. Note that it doesn't have all the same features, and that's very deliberate because the makers of Instagram want you to look at it on the phone. They also have the, the scroll be endless, just like there's no clocks in casinos, so that you don't have any trigger to recognize how much time is passing. Um, so you can protect yourself by... If you don't want to delete it, although I do recommend that, uh, moving it to an interior page of your phone and in a folder that says something like watch out or something that yeah. m- makes it so that you actually have to scroll over and actively do it. And then you can and then your home screen. I mean, it should be tools, not temptations is what I tell people. So you don't want anything on your home screen or your phone that's going to be an invitation to get sucked into or that's going to look up at you with its colorful little icon when you when you randomly pick up your phone without thinking. So like my home screen, it's like Google Maps or Uber. It's very hard to get sucked into Uber. It's just utilities. Yeah, utilities. It's just not that interesting. So do you not have Instagram on there? Um, Right now I do only because I had to do a, this is so ironic, an Instagram takeover this week for book promotion. The only time I've ever been on Instagram, but I'm taking it off because it's just it's just too tempting. I mean, the whole point is to tempt you. Just get it off. What about your email, though? Because for me, the primary driver is email. Email is tricky. So email. So getting back to this idea of um, removing triggers for behaviors you want to change and then replacing them with something else. Email is definitely my biggest issue, too, because it, I mean, it's, it's a quintessential like people compare our phones to slot machines and email is very much like a slot machine. You check it and you don't know what's going to happen. And sometimes there's something great waiting for, for you. And most of the time there's not. But you still keep checking it and checking it. So one thing to do, both for email and everything else, is to turn off notifications. A lot of people have tuned into the fact that you should turn off the audible notifications on your phone, mm-hmm. but often don't recognize that the little bubbles, the little red bubbles with the numbers, those are notifications. And on your browser, the little, at least I use Gmail, the number that says how many messages there are that's in the browser tab, that's a notification. Mm. And anytime your brain gets a notification... You end up like uh, Pavlov's dogs where you're, you know, you're in in that famous experiment. He trained dogs to drool when they heard a bell because he taught them to associate the ringing of a bell with the with eating food. We associate the sight or sound of a notification with getting something new. And so whenever we get a notification, it activates that dopamine system in our brain. And once that gets activated, it's just really hard to step aside. So take all the notifications off. I recommend actually going through your apps and and deactivating all notifications except for the ones that you definitely want to have on. For me, that's phone calls, text messages, and uh, like um, navigation, and then maybe the calendar because those are just practical tools or contact with a real person in real time who actually wants to speak to me. <laughs> but for but not news alerts. Not, oh my God, no, I took the news off my phone. I mean, obviously, this might not be a possibility for not you. For me. It's not a possibility. But I, I realized what I was doing is I was just compulsively reading every single article in the app and that that was not making me feel good when I actually thought, how do you feel when you're reading all of these 
news stories, and it wasn't good. So I deleted all the apps. I I call it breaking up with the news. No offense. But I do get plenty of news because I check it from my desktop or I uh, subscribe to the Sunday paper. And so I find that even though I, I nominally have broken up with the news, I actually am perfectly well informed without having to be driven crazy by it. You're not drowning in it. Not drowning. But for email, I mean, I do things like I installed a plugin called Inbox When Ready for Chrome, and that hides the number of new messages that you have, and it hides your inbox. Those sound like really, I don't know, simple things that wouldn't really do very much, but I could not have written this book without it because I had the whole process of writing the book. It was one year from finding out they were interested to publication date. It was like insane. Yeah, I did that that in my last recent most recent book, one year from from conception to publication, and it was just awful. Right, right. And so for me, I had such an issue with email. I realized I had a tick where I would just finish that sentence and then check my email. So yes. with Inbox When Ready, you go to your email and you actually have to click on a button that says Show Inbox. So again, that's a speed bump. You actually have to do something proactive to see your inbox. And you can search for email and you can compose email in it without seeing your inbox. And I could not believe the difference that made in allowing me to use email when I proactively wanted to, but not to just get sucked into the spiral because I do the same thing that you do. It's just like, that's where I get lost. Yeah. Email is the big time suck for me. And even when you check it when you're ready, though, there are just, there's so many things to respond to. And, you know, and, and the more you respond the more you have to respond again. You know, you get into these discussions. Yeah. Um, I, I don't actually know what the way out of it is. And the other thing is that I find that so I'm pretty good at really not letting the email, like, pile up. But then I have, like, 10 emails in my queue at all times are the, are the rock-bottom remainders that I don't want to respond to because they're, like, actually, like, tricky. Uh, so <laughs> I don't get any dopamine from looking at them. I only get guilt. Right. right. It's just your stress hormones making yeah. you feel bad. I do the same thing. Recently, what I've started to do is to try to get things out of my inbox and actually identify what the task is that are, is associated with those things and then put that on a to-do list. Uh, I, I mean, that's not my idea. That's I've gotten that from elsewhere, but uh, to create action steps from that so that you know that your email inbox is calm and that you have you have everything else that you're supposed to respond to taken into account somewhere else. And so that way, you know, that was just reading in this book, Getting Things Done, the famous book about productivity. But the idea being that if you have a an unresolved thing in your mind, like an email that you know you need to answer, some part of your brain is going to constantly be looping on that email. So the idea is to take that they take that uh, thing and put it someplace so you know it's captured so you can stop, you can free your brain up. And I found that to be actually really useful is to say, okay, well, let me make, make a list of what I actually need to do as a result of these emails, get them out of my inbox, don't use the inbox as a holding pen. And I've also found it very useful to use apps to protect me from myself. People tend to say that's ironic, but I actually think it's just very practical. So, for example, there's one called Freedom that works very well for Apple products, and you can block particular apps and websites at certain times of day and set a schedule for yourself. So you can say, like, for example, I'm always three minutes late for the gym. I'm always at least three minutes late because I will be on my computer checking email and then just not stop. So I've used Freedom to block my access 10 minutes before I know I need to leave the house. And so then I'll Why go to... Why do you need to be the gym on time? Oh, it's a class. Oh, it's a it's class. A class yes. What class? Uh, it's like a cross-training class. Nice. Yeah. Um, but it's like embarrassing, like how consistently I'm always the exact same amount of time late. 
And what was so funny about the most recent time when I first set this up is I, I just kept clicking like refresh because because freedom will just it just doesn't work anymore. And I actually convinced myself that there had been a worldwide attack on the Internet <laughs> and that that must be some issue with like, yeah, it was a global crisis when, in fact, I had just set up my system so that I couldn't check my email <laughs> during that time. But anyway, little hacks like that, once you have a broader goal in place, are really helpful. It's just they don't work if they're in isolation. We, we may have covered this, but what what are there hacks for the sort of and maybe it's the WWW thing you talked about before, but I, there are just times where like. It's Sunday night. My wife and I are watching TV and my phone's there. And like every once in a while in the middle of Homeland, I'm watching, I'm picking up my phone and checking it for no good reason. Like, were there hacks around the sort of checking for no good reason? Yeah, definitely. And also just as a side note, if you're feeling bored during Homeland, that's like really, (laughs) I don't know, saying something. I I know. uh, I'm not, though. I just like it. It's just not bored. I just. I don't know why I reached exactly, exactly. And I, the movies are better because I'm not doing it during the movies because it's socially unacceptable. Oh. But at home, you know, nobody's telling me, although my wife probably should, although she's not super good at this either. She's perfect in every other way, mm-hmm. if you're listening. Um, <laughs> but, but you know, we both have our phones right there. Well, that's dumb. Exactly. I mean, that's where you start to say, okay, well, I want to spend, I want to check my phone less during Homeland why? Why do you want to check it less during Homeland? Because it doesn't do anything for me. I'm not, it's not making me happier in any way. And I enjoy Homeland or Billions or whatever it is that we're watching. I enjoy those shows. So that that I should just just be there hanging out with my wife watching TV. Why do I need the extra, the second screen experience? Right. Okay. So now we've established that you would like to get the phone. You'd like to not check your phone during Homeland because you actually like Homeland and, and it's not adding to your enjoyment of the moment. So then you could say, okay, well, how could I change the situation to make that less likely? The most obvious thing is don't have your phone in the room when you're watching yes. Homeland. Um, and then give yourself something else to do instead of, I don't know, get yourself a cup of tea, give yourself something to do with your hands. So then when you go to reach for your phone, you have an alternative that also reminds you of the habit you're trying yes. to change. Yeah. I mean, I personally, I, I charge my phone in a closet overnight. I actually created a little bed for it, which sounds ridiculous, but it's actually very psychologically effective. And I, and I tuck my phone in at night and close the door. And if I want to check my point, phone, like, I try to do it around dinner time. Wow. But you can also see there's all these little hacks that once you have this broader goal in place, you can start to make changes to to make it easier. So I turn normally my phone's on silent, but I can turn the the volume up when I put it to bed at dinner time so that if someone actually calls me, which I think is a perfectly good use of my phone, it will ring. It becomes a landline. So that I don't miss a call if someone is actually trying, I mean, who calls anyone anymore? But if someone were to try to call me, I wouldn't miss it. But then also, if I want to go check my phone at any point in the evening, I can do that. It's just I have to go over to the closet and use my phone there. And I try to make a point of checking my phone with it still plugged in. And that means that I have to stand in a closet (laughs) when I want to look at my phone. And that's kind of an awkward place to be, which means that I don't then get into this spiral of looking on eBay for doorknobs or checking my email because I'm constantly reminded I'm standing in the closet, you know, tethered to my phone. So little things like that. I mean, I I also recommend I mean, I definitely recommend people have a place that their phone goes to bed at night and that it's consistent because if you have to make if you're constantly making decisions, you're much less likely to stick with the habit. You want to have it be an automatically made decision that my phone sleeps here (laughs) every night. And so does your wife's. Or when I watch Homeland, my phone is in the other room. And I'm going, if you feel the need to check it, you're going to check it 
during commercial breaks or during a break, like you're going to have a time when you're consciously going to get up and check it. So you're trying to make sure it doesn't feel like restrictions on yourself because that's like the surest way to fail. Um, but more like you're creating changes so that you can spend more time on the stuff you actually want to be spending time on and not let your phone take away from the experience of your life. If I understand it correctly, in the book, you have like a four week plan. Mm-hmm. Can you just sort of walk me through that? Sure. Yeah. So the book is structured. It's broken into two parts. The first is the wake up and the second is the breakup. And the wake <laughs> up is this uh, this using my background as a science journalist to look into some of the effects that spending a lot of time on phones is having on our brains and our sleep and our stress levels and our relationships. In other words, trying to freak people out to give you a motivation to change. Is there a reason to be freaked out? There is. Yeah, we could talk more about that too. But the average person spending four hours a day on their phone just with the screen on these days, that's based on this tracking app that has 4.8 million users. Um, And that's a a quarter of our waking lives or just a sixth of our life. (laughs) So it's a huge amount of time. That's the first half of the book. The second half is meant to actually give people a way to change because I didn't want to just freak them out and then leave them hanging. So that's the four week plan. You could do it in less time than that. But the point was you can't do it in just an afternoon because it takes time to change behaviors. So the first week is just what we were talking about initially, which is to take a step back and start paying attention to how you feel when you're on your phone. Try to get back in touch with the things that you actually love and bring you joy, um, which is kind of a hard question to I found hard to answer, like, what do I actually want to be doing with my free time? Because if you spend less time on your phone, you're going to end it with more free time and you have to have something to do with it. Once you've established that more philosophical framework, the second week is about making practical changes to your phone and environment. So that's where the hacks come in. But they're no longer really hacks because they're more like techniques because you now have a goal. And then the third week is about rebuilding your muscle of attention. So we can talk more about the effect of our phones, phone time on our attention spans, but They are having an effect and it takes time to build your attention span back up. And that's where suggestions such as meditation come into play or just mindfulness practices, attention building practices, like just reading a book for 10 minutes without your phone. I mean, that's that's where we are, that that's actually really hard for a lot of us. And then the last week is about putting this all together and create basically evaluating what you've done and seeing what you what you've learned and then creating a kind of a description of your new relationship and a, and a written down record of your new habits so that you can keep them for the long term. And between the week three and four, there's also a 24 hour break from your phone where you just do a full on 24 hour, you know, put your phone away. And that is a very, very uh, challenging at first, but then rewarding experience for people that often ends up being easier than they thought. Hmm. Okay, so that was a good walk through the breakup. Let's go back to the wake up for a second. Like, sure. So how is a woman who who has sat in your chair previously, who's been a guest on this podcast previously, Manoush Zamarodi, who's oh, yeah. host of Note to Self, a great podcast. Um, I believe she used the term that we are conducting a global, unmonitored, unrestricted science experiment on our minds with these mobile devices. And we don't know what the outcome is going to be. Yes, yes, we are in the middle of a giant society-wide uncontrolled experiment. But with that said, we have some indications of what some of the effects are or could be, and those are not good. So just to talk about attention and focus as an example, the human brain does not actually want to be able to concentrate on just one thing. If you think about it, it makes no evolutionary sense to be too focused on one thing because you could have threats in your environment that could kill you. Mm. So if you're like totally lost in a book and then there's a rustle in the in the grass and there's a lion, you'd want to be aware of that. So our brains naturally want to be distractible. 
that means that the act of concentration is actually an amazing feat. Reading a book is an amazing, amazing feat. It does not come naturally to us at all. And that is both because, well, for many reasons, you have to decipher random symbols, right? You have to choose what to concentrate on. But more importantly, you have to ignore everything else. You have to train your brain to ignore every other stimulus in your environment, which even right now, like as we're talking, like I can feel the chair under me or like mm-hmm. I could, you know, I can, there's all sorts of different s- things to pay attention to in this room, but I'm focusing on our conversation. And that that's, that if I may say so myself, is an amazing feat that we can do this. Um, when you're on your phone, you're constantly, constantly exposing yourself to distractions, whether it's different items in your social media feed, or if you're reading an article and there are links, every time you encounter a link, your brain has to make a split second decision about whether to follow the link. And you actually cannot absorb what you're reading and make a decision at the same time. So if you feel exhausted when you read online, you're not, yeah, you're not crazy. You're exhausting your brain. I feel exhausted all the time. All the time. Yes. Yes, because it is. Really stressful. It tires out a part of our brain called the prefrontal cortex, which is the executive uh, control center of our brains. It's the, one of the newest areas of our brains. And when it gets tired, it just like checks out. It's like, see you later and lets us go back to more primitive parts of our brain that really want to be distracted. So my point being that our phones are full of distractions. They're little distraction machines. And so when you spend lots of time on your phone, I mean, think about it. How often are you actually getting lost in a long form piece of journalism on your phone as opposed to either looking at different things in one app or flipping between apps? And whenever we do that, we're actually training our brains to go back towards our default state of distraction. So when people say, like, I feel like my concentration is not what it used to be or my attention span is waning, you're not you're not crazy like you actually are training your brain to do that it's like the opposite of meditation it is uh, we are yes unmeditating we are unmeditating and that actually um this is great because you're like i never get to like go into this much depth about this but um i think this is really interesting people always ask me like where are the brain scans showing what happens when your phone on your phone for hours a day like we want brain scans and i'm like well we don't really have those because we launched into this experiment without realizing it was an experiment. So now there's no control group. Mm. And once you recognize that an intervention might have negative consequences, you can't then randomize people to that that group. You Could can't we use the Bushmen of the Kalahari or whatever, some some group that I don't know if the Bushmen have uh, iPhones, but maybe they don't <laughs> or some, something like yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. You'd have to find a, a group that didn't have the phone. Um But we have studied the opposite, which is the effect of meditation on people's brains Mm. when people, you know, train themselves to maintain focus. And so you can look at that mind state and compare that to what happens when you're on your phone. And there's a a very interesting researcher, Judson Brewer. I know he's a friend of mine and has been on this podcast twice. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, he does fascinating work with uh, allowing people meditating to actually see their own thoughts in real time and seeing when distractions arise. And uh, anyway, it's just I think it's really fascinating. That's like the the fact that meditation is the anti-phone. And and, but you can use your phone to help you meditate. That's another weird thing is like. (laughs) There's a lot of great apps. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, I'm partial to one called 10% Happier. Um, <laughs> the the I guess I have two questions before I let you go, um, and maybe your answers will inspire other questions. But one is about your child. Do you ever let her have screen time? I'm very, very careful about screen time with her. The only things I let her do on the phone are talk to her grandparents on FaceTime and sometimes look at photos. But never like hand her YouTube. Kids. No, I never do that. I never do that. And I, and I 
I feel very strongly about that. And I also try to minimize the amount of time she sees me using on my phone and uh, to, to announce what I'm doing if I'm doing something on my phone. I'm bad at all of this. <laughs> no judgment. But I mean, I think the issue is that you've probably experienced this too. Like, I mean, these are, God, I guess what I was going to say before that, that our brains are plastic, right? They change yes. all the time. Yeah. That's why we can learn stuff. So anytime you're doing something, in the case of our phones, four hours a day, you're changing your brain and it would make sense to ask whether or not you want those changes to be made. Right. And in the cases of children, obviously their brains are developing for the first time, making them particularly vulnerable. And therefore, in my view, um, something that parents should be very protective of. And I think the danger with uh, phones, I mean, there's many things to be aware of and think about. But one issue is that they're so stimulating that after you get used to watching uh, constant videos or playing games on the phone, a book is not going to have the same appeal. Right, and right. as adults, we can kind of like have a more meta conversation with ourselves of, no, I want to read the book. But as a kid, you're like, why would I look at the book? That's so yeah, boring. Yeah. There's a disturbing video on uh, on YouTube. It's like <laughs> a little kid trying to swipe a magazine's page. <laughs> and the, I think the caption is like a magazine is an iPad that doesn't work. I've heard of um, little kids trying to swipe their parents when oh, they're God. saying things they don't want to hear. Yeah, exactly. yeah. If your yeah. kid is swiping you, yeah. then that's that's yeah. that's a concern. <laughs> so I guess my final question is like, are you've now done this thing? You wrote this book. Uh, you've got done all this research. Would you say you have like a perfectly healthy relationship with your phone now? No, definitely not. I, because no relationship is ever perfect, and you always have to be working on them. And phones, in particular, are designed to encourage unhealthy relationships. So I feel that I have a much healthier relationship that I did than I did. And most of the time it is healthy. But there's certainly moments where I catch myself doing things I don't want to be doing on the phone. But I guess the point is I catch myself. And I've also really put a lot of work into trying to use the awareness I've cultivated toward my phone in other areas of my life as well. So so I would say that it's actually become an interesting tool. Like my phone has gone from a constant temptation to still being a temptation but also being this constant invitation to check back in with myself about how i actually want to be spending my time and attention and so it's it's had really a profound impact on my life in ways i definitely wouldn't have anticipated when i first started working on this book you've been a great guest um we end by uh doing what i call the the plug zone so like Let's just plug everything. Uh, where can we find you on social media? Again, with the name of the book, all your other books, like everything you can plug. Everything plug I can it. plug. Yeah. All right, let's see. Um, I hate social media, but you could find me on Twitter at, at Catherine underscore Price. You with can a find C. with a C with a C. You can find out more about the book at phonebreakup.com. And that also has a lot of useful resources and tools I put together, like free lock screen downloads people can use to check in with themselves before they, che they check their phones. There's a 30 day online challenge that I've created at phonebreakup.com, which is a timed series of emails meant to accompany the book that start when you sign up so that you get daily reminders to keep you on track. And that's a great thing to do with friends and family. I've created a, a a collection of resources that teachers and educators and book clubs can use to turn the phone break up into a group experience. I think that actually is a really fun thing to do together and um, will definitely help keep you motivated. I have written a number of other books. My last book was called Vitamania, How Vitamins Revolutionize the Way We Think About Food, which is about a totally different subject, the history of vitamins. But interestingly, 
it also had a philosophical bent to it where I started looking at vitamins and then realized that these substances that that uh, keep us alive, they, they actually have this much more profound um, philosophical meaning. And the, the vitamins themselves and the word vitamin has changed the way that we think about food and nutrition. I've written a number of guided journals, including the Mindfulness, a guided journal to mindfulness and a gratitude journal. And I've also written a parody travel guide called 101 Places Not to See Before You Die and the Big Sur Bakery Cookbook. Um, and then my general author website is Catherine with the C hyphen price at no just dot com Catherine hyphen price dot com and that hyphen kills me but there's an acupuncturist who took Catherine price dot com excellent a great job really appreciate it I really enjoy the conversation thank you okay that does it for another edition of the 10% happier podcast if you liked it please take a minute to subscribe rate us also if you want to suggest topics you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in hit me up on twitter at dan b harris importantly i want to thank uh, the people who produce this podcast lauren efron josh cohan and the rest of the folks here at abc who helped make this thing possible we have tons of other podcasts you can check them out at abcnewspodcasts.com i'll talk to you next wednesday if you like 10 percent happier and i hope you do uh, you can listen early and ad free right now by joining wondery plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuel, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.